Hi, and welcome to another Kingdom 101 teaching. I'm glad that you're able to join me. My name is Hanson, and I'm from Archippus Awakening, a ministry that is dedicated to the awakening of saints that we may all know and fulfill our God-given Kingdom assignments. And speaking of Kingdom assignments, that's where Kingdom 101 comes in. We want to revisit Kingdom fundamentals, so that we can know our King Jesus all over again, that we may embrace the things of His Kingdom, and then we will know where we fit in in His Kingdom picture and how we can move on our Kingdom assignments. In this teaching, our passage is drawn from Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. Allow me to read this for you from the New King James. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in the hook, take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the word of the kingdom. We want to hear you, Holy Spirit, because you are the spirit of the king. Please be with me as I share what you have laid upon my heart and be with every person tuning in. May we learn from you that we may then live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Benjamin Franklin once said, In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Well, understandably, no one really likes this word tax or taxes. It's like a necessary evil, is it not? It evokes all sorts of emotions and reactions. But if you are a nation, if you are leading a nation, you are the government, there are only three ways you can raise money or funds. One is to make the money or you print it. Second is to borrow it from someone else. And third, you tax the people and receive that money and use it on behalf of the people. All well and good, but what about the kingdom of God, the people of God? Are we liable for a kingdom tax of sorts? Or some might even think of the word tithe whenever we talk of giving to the kingdom of God. Well, we encounter a certain tax situation in Matthew chapter 17 in this passage that we just read in verse 24 all the way to 27. Notice that this is only recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe Matthew, as an ex-tax collector, he had a personal interest in the topic of tax. It's a very short account of just four verses, but I can tell you it's anything but straightforward. I will do my very best to present it as simply, as clearly as I can. You know, when you look at this account, it's very tempting to just focus on Jesus' instruction to Peter to go fishing for some tax money. We can just talk about supernatural provision, how God will give us enough that we can pay our taxes. Nice, but that would be doing this passage a great disservice. There's so much more, and I pray that as I unpack this, you will hear what Matthew really wants to say to the people of God's kingdom. So let's learn together. Firstly, let's look at a big picture. The passage that we read refers to a temple text. That's Jesus and encountering these characters of the temple text in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. But to understand correctly this temple text, we must go back all the way to Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 to 16. And here we will find an instruction to Moses about the building of the tabernacle. Now, how did that come about and what was that for? That after a while, by the end of the Maccabean period, which is the intertestamental time, it became known as the temple text. Now, it didn't just stop there because after 70 AD, when the temple was no longer standing, 
this temple tax eventually became a Roman tax. Now, once you look at this big, broad-stroke picture, then we ask ourselves this question. Now, how would then the Jews react, not just in the time of Jesus, but in the time then of a Roman tax? Do you pay this Roman tax just because they are Jews? Or when they're now Jewish Christians versus the Jewish non-Christians, how will they respond to a scenario like this? So I hope this broad picture and context um, is set for us that we can now put in the details and let's learn from it. But before that, again, let's define some terms, some currency terms. We read about the temple text, but in the other versions, it speaks of a term called drachma or the didrachma, the double drachma. And in other places, we know that this is the half shekel or the half shekel text. Uh, what exactly is a shekel or a drachma? Well, if you see the terms shekel, beka, gera, now these terms are unfamiliar to us, but they are essentially Jewish weight measurement terms of precious metals like gold, silver, or copper. So the shekel is a weight measurement. The becker is really half the shekel. Now, how do you measure this weight? It is equivalent to uh, 160 barley grains, roughly 8 to 9 grams. Um, a gera is 1 20th of a shekel, just 60 barley grains. Just hold this in your mind and in your thought for a moment because we will encounter these terms soon enough. The drachma is equivalent to about a day's wages and we have encountered some references to the Roman denarius. Now the double drachma is equal to the half shekel and so this is where you see the relation. The two drachma coin is a Greek silver coin that is equivalent to the half shekel or in Jewish terms a half shekel silver coin. Now, in Roman times, after the Greek occupation, now came the Roman uh, occupation, uh, the Romans operated a mint somewhere in Tyre and they produced these silver half shekels of extremely high quality, 94% pure silver. And this coin is then used to pay the temple tax. If you look at today's value and you want to know how much this might be in, in today's terms, that half shekel would be about 9 to 10 Singapore dollars uh, in today's value. In verse 27, we see a piece of money. Now, that's the stutter. Now, what's the stutter? The stutter is a four drachma coin. Now, if two drachma is half a shekel, then four drachma would be one shekel. I hope that this is helpful for you as we try to understand this passage. When the Jews came from all over the world, uh, back to Jerusalem, to the temple, they needed this shekel and they would pay this temple tax uh, required of all Jews at that point in time. Now, remember the money changers at the temple? Now, they were the ones that would have to do that foreign exchange, that money changing, because the temple would only receive a temple shekel. And that was where the money changers would profit from the exchanges or dare I say, they profiteered from the exchanges and Jesus had very, very harsh words for them. Well, now that we understand uh, the big picture, as well as some currency terms, let's go to the precursor of the temple text. Remember I said that uh, it's based very loosely on a scripture in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16. Now, let me read this passage for you, but as I do this, just bear in mind that this instruction to the people of Israel, they were given in the midst of the instruction to build the tabernacle. So this is right there, right tucked in, somewhere in the middle, in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 30. The Lord said to Moses, saying, when they take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Now, this is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. 
The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Well, quite an interesting passage with so many details. Let's dive in a little bit more deeply. Firstly, what is this collection for? You know, what is it called? Well, we see that we need to collect this, or Moses told the people, you must collect this. It is for a ransom for himself to the Lord. And in verse 12, it's called the ransom money. Now, what's ransom? A ransom is a compensation, a satisfaction, or a substitution. In other words, it is given, this money is given in place of this one person. But what is that for? Hang in there for a moment. Now, at the end, in verses 15 and 16, we are told that it is an atonement money. And this is to make atonement for yourself. Oh, wait, hang on. So there's a ransom money, but now there's an atonement money. Now, what is this atonement? Now, the word atonement in the Hebrew comes from a root word that means to cover. And you will remember when God told Noah to build the ark, he was to cover, to smear it with pitch, this ark, so that he would cover it with a covering that would help it stay afloat. Now, it has that same root meaning. In atonement, it means to make amends, to pardon, to release, to appease, to forgive, to remove a guilt. And I suppose in this understanding, it is to cover a wrongdoing for a certain period of time. So the atonement money can be referred to also as a covering money of something that is not correct so that this person can then be released or pardoned. So there's a ransom money and that's also known as an atonement money and they're very, very closely related. Here's the question, what exactly is this ransom or atonement money for? Hold your thoughts for a while. Now, when is this money to be collected? It says that it is during the census of all male adult Jews, 20 years and above. So after a while, it's a numbering collection, is a poll, right? A collection during the poll, as well as a head count of all male adult Jews, which is why later this text, as it were, would be referred to as a poll text or a head text. But it is more than just a population census to see how many people were there in the children or amongst the nation of Israel. There's a significance when we look at that phrase, 20 years and above. If you know the Bible and you read the Old Testament, whenever you number someone from 20 years up, it would be of a military age. This numbering was not just how many people do we have in the nation. It was a numbering of the children of Israel that would refer to the mustering of able-bodied men for the nation's army. There was a military significance in this numbering. Now in Exodus chapter 30, it goes on to say that while you number, you need to collect this so that there will not be a plague amongst that numbering. Now the Hebrew term for plague comes from a root which means slaughter in battle. Can you see now? A military significance is not just a plague of a disease, but it is to protect the people as and when they will go out to battle, that they will not suffer defeat, that God will pro protect them from a slaughter in battle. Now let's come back to the ransom money or the atonement money. Now this money is to be paid because whenever you take a human life, a ransom must be given. If you take another life that does not constitute murder, you need to compensate for this death. And as soldiers, you are a potential taker of life, right? You're going out in the name of Yahweh. You're not going out to murder. 
You're going out to battle in the name of the Lord and you will have to take a life for His name and for His purposes. You now need to pay for, ransom for your own life in place of the life or the lives that you would be taking. And this money then atones, pardons, covers you for the taking of lives in battle. Can you start to see the bigger picture right now, what this collection was really for? What is interesting is the amount must be the same across the board. Now, whether you're richer or you're poorer, if you had more or you had less, same amount, half a shekel, a becker, right? Half a shekel. Why? Because in the eyes of the Lord, every life is equal. Every person stands equal before God, regardless the station or the status. But when the Lord gave this instruction, it was just for the building of a tabernacle. There was no impending war yet at this point in time. The implication is simple. You are to be ready as soldiers of the Lord's army. Anytime you are to move out in readiness, and when you give this money, when we make this collection, ransom and atonement has already been made, provided for, so that any time when the shofar sounds and you are needing to be sent out for the battle of the Lord, you will be ready. Everything taken care of now. But let's go on. The money is collected, but how is this money used? Right? You don't just collect it and leave it there for nothing. God has a purpose for everything. And so in verse 16, the Lord says, You shall take the atonement money for the children of Israel, and you shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. So can you see the different needs and the different purposes here? One, ransom, atonement. But two, it is now for the service of the tabernacle of meetings. Now, if you look at the word service, it seems to suggest, right, you know, it's like a, a sinking fund to be collected. But not really. It doesn't say that you have to collect this annually uh, for the maintenance of the tabernacle. Not that there's no need for that. But it's not really annually. Uh, but later on, it became an annual requirement for the Jews. Specifically, because it was given in the middle of giving details of the tabernacle, it was given for the construction of the tabernacle. We will see in chapter 38, a couple of chapters down, in 25 and 26, we are told that the silver that came from the numbering of this congregation of this army was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels. A becker for every man, that is half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and for everyone included in the numbering from 20 years up, 603,550 men. If you know this number, you will compare it in Numbers chapter 1, 46, and chapter 2, verse 32. It's the exact same number that was numbered from the tribes as well as the armies of the Lord. Exactly. So out of this number, you collect 301,775 shekels. Now what is this for? Verse 27 tells us, 100 talents to make 100 silver sockets for the tabernacle. The rest, 1,775 shekels, were for the hooks, for the pillars, uh, overlaid their capitals and made bands, um, the accessories uh, of the tabernacle. So can you see, it's very specific for the construction of this tabernacle, which means once it is done, it's no longer required until for perhaps another collection later on. What we must note also is that we are, they are not told to give to the construction only. Free will offerings were taken and we are told in Exodus chapter 36 that the people gave so much that Moses had to tell them, please stop. So they gave to the temple, not that they had to, but they gave it in addition to the free will offering. But these were specifically for the ransom and atonement money that would be needed. Now, later on, this same text, as it were, was required for the repair of the temple. Later years, when they had kings like Joash and some other kings, they would institute this again to collect. 
So what I want you to see is that this is as and where needed. It's no longer tied to the census or the mustering of troops. But the question is then, why impose this tax? Why not just collect a free will offering? Because you would be able to get enough funds also from the people. Why a tax? So let me summarize this rather lengthy uh, introduction and discussion about this uh, Exodus chapter 30 collection of the ransom and atonement money. Firstly, there is a military significance. It was for the mustering of troops, the preparedness, the readiness of the soldiers of the Lord to move on the purposes and assignments of the Lord anytime and as and when it was required. It was for a ransom as well as for atonement. And this will be equal for every life. Everyone was the same, equal before the Lord. It will be given for the construction of the tabernacle. Why? What, what was the relation? Because the tabernacle would in time administer that ransom and the atonement through the offerings and the sacrifice. Look at that relationship. It was asked for once and later as and when uh, required, uh, not necessarily annually. So now that we understand Exodus chapter 30, which is the precursor of the temple text, we now can move to look at how it became this annual temple tax uh, that the people were collecting uh, on a very regular basis. Now, by the end of the Maccabean period, which is 165 to 63 BC, this would be during the intertestamental times, all adult Jewish males throughout the world, all scattered, they had to come and they would pay an annual two drachma tax, very, 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 very loosely based on Exodus chapter 30, as we have just shared with you. What is this for? It is for the support and the upkeep of the Jerusalem temple. So it sounds good. We've got a temple there. We've got to maintain. We've got to sow into a maintenance fund so that we can make sure everything runs well there. Now, before the war of 66 to 70 AD, this funds that they raised, they were, it was so enormous. I mean, everyone was so faithful and so obedient. They were obliged to give. They collected so much that the temple authorities didn't know what to do with all these extra resources. And so what did they do? Finally, they constructed a, a massive golden vine, fully solid gold, with clusters of grapes. And I understand that this would be so high, the height of uh, a, a man. That's how big it was. This was not just a monument. It was set against a gold wall. The temple was so rich because it collected this on an annual basis and they had to do something with it to at least be accountable to the people who would give this. Now, when it came to 70 AD, we know what happened there, right? The Romans came in, besieged Jerusalem and, uh, and, and just destroyed the entire temple. After 70 AD, there was no more temple. But the Jews were so zealous in fulfilling this obligation that they kept giving money to Jerusalem and the Roman governors were then thinking, all right, now there's no temple, they're still giving this temple tax. What do we do with it? I tell you what, we will repurpose it. There's no Jewish temple. They now reallocate it to their own needs, the temple of Jupiter. So they seized all these funds for their Roman temples and their purposes. Now, we must also note that this temple tax was not compulsory, but it became a required obligation of all the Jews. This was not necessarily law, although the Lord did tell Moses to collect it in the time of the tabernacle. But it became, over the years, a very, very strong tradition. So can you see, we can take scripture and give a biblical scripture or basis to, to almost anything and everything and make it into a law and even a tradition and became a, then an obligation. We can be shackled even to a half-shackled law. And that's why the collectors would be sent out to solicit these funds. Why? Because certain groups refused to comply. They said, look, this is voluntary. But the collectors will be sent out to sort of press in for this obligation to say, yeah, yeah, I know it's voluntary, but somehow, you know, they would be pressured to give to the temple because 
the Bible says so or the scripture says so. And here we then have to ask this question, what about Jesus and his disciples? Now we are ready to unpack this text in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 17. When they were in Capernaum, that's Jesus' home base, right? His operation base where he would be uh, moving into the regions of Galilee from. Those who received the temple tax, the collectors, they came to Peter and they asked, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Now, these collectors, they had some reasons to wonder whether Jesus would pay such a tax. Because through other traditions, the tax would not be imposed on those who lived off charity. Right? So even in our day, we have a tax-exempt status for charitable organizations. And if Jesus was like a traveling minister uh, living off charity of people, would he then pay the tax? Was he exempt? Now, the Sadducees didn't really agree with this, so they disapproved of this. Another group, the Essenes, now these were the pietists, they thought that the temple was impure in the first place, and that's why they want to have nothing to do with it. Did they pay? Yeah. They would pay, but just once in their lifetime, and they would withdraw into the wilderness, they would separate themselves, and temple, I don't want to have anything to do with the temple anyway. In fact, the priests of the day, uh, they were exempt also from the two drachma tax. And later on, the rabbis, they were also exempt. So Jesus, are you a rabbi? Are you acknowledged as one? I mean, people call you one, so do you pay? So what about Jesus? The, the collectors didn't know what to do with this guy, right? Uh, given his many confrontations with the religious leaders, even the systems and whatever he said about the temple, would he pay the tax? Did he pay the tax? Now, the collectors didn't dare confront Jesus, so you speak to the disciples, so they checked with Peter. So they asked Peter, Hey, does Jesus pay this tax or not? Does your master, is he required? Does he even pay this tax? And Peter immediately said, Yes, yes. Peter readily answers without even checking with Jesus. And I suspect he doesn't even know whether Jesus actually paid this or not. And this is typical Peter. Impetuous, impulsive. Let's answer first and let's clarify later because I don't want to have to give any reason to these collectors why he paid or did not pay. And if he really did not pay, what would I say, right? You know, was he a bad Jew? Uh, would I still follow him? Will they take us to task? Will he question so many other things? And Jesus knew what Peter said. So when Peter came into the house, Jesus anticipated the clarification. Peter would have probably wanted to ask the Lord, Hey, Master, they just asked me, you know, so do you pay or don't you pay? And so the Lord asked Peter, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Now, Peter would know the answer very well. Israel would have been a conquered people for many, many years. And in those days, conquerors would subject the conquered people, not their own people. They would subject their, these, their conquered people, the strangers that it were, to taxation. But there would be certain cases where they would exempt certain groups from being taxed. But most significantly, the most important point is this, dependence sons, relations of the king, they were naturally exempt from taxes. You don't even have to ask this at all. And that's why Peter replied Jesus, from strangers. And then Jesus immediately then said, well then the sons are free. And it's so clear because Jesus has been saying, look, my father, God is king. He's my dad. And I'm telling you, I am the son of God. And if God is king, and I am the Messiah that God has sent, and I am the Son of God, every, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to me. I am not liable for any tax or any financial obligation. It's as clear. You don't even need any interpretation skills to know this. If you know the culture of that day, then what Jesus is really saying to Peter is, I am the son, and because the temple belongs to my father, the people of God belong to my God, and he is the father, and I am his son, I go free. And not just the son is free, the sons are free. Everyone who is related to God, who calls him Abba, Father, 
the sons are free. But don't just look at a financial understanding. I believe Jesus intended also a double meaning. You're not just free from tax, but you're free from guilt and free from sin. Why? Because in Exodus chapter 30, this money was collected as a ransom money as well as an atonement money. This is what the collection was for. And the ransom, Jesus knew, would be fulfilled in him when he would give his life as a ransom for many. Now we will get to Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. He says, look, I came, the Son of Man, the Son of God, did not come just to be served, but I will serve you all. As what? I will give my life as this ransom. So if you believe in me, that ransom money that you used to pay no longer needed because by faith, I will be that substitute for you, that sacrifice for you, that satisfaction that would please the Lord, that would be taking your place for the guilt and every wrongdoing in your life. I am also the atonement that would be fulfilled for you. Jesus doesn't just cover sins. You know, the, the, the sacrifice, the offerings of bloods and bulls and goats, the blood that would be shed would cover sin temporarily. But Jesus would come not just to cover sin, but to take away, wash away all sin. And John saw Jesus and he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And because I take away that sin, you no longer need to pay the money for atonement. I will pay it on your behalf with my life. So the ransom paid for by Jesus, the atonement, paid for by Jesus. Now, what about the maintenance of the temple? Friends, the temple is also fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All through the book of Matthew, he's been saying, the temple is good, but I am greater than the temple. You don't swear by the temple, right? You swear by what you say in me. And if you are people of the kingdom, your yes will be yes and your no will be yet no because you don't need this temple anymore. I am greater than the temple. If you live by my ways, you will know to live the way of the kingdom. And even then, the temple system, Jesus knew, will end very soon. Upon his death, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. And in Matthew chapter 24, he prophesied that very soon the temple will be destroyed. There will be no longer any temple. There's no longer any temple physically to upkeep. The ransom and the atonement is found in Jesus. And because the temple ministered and administered the ransom and the atonement and the temple is no more, we trust no longer in a temple system, not in a religious system. We trust in Jesus who alone is the temple, the ransom and the atonement for us. And when we believe in Jesus, we become children of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, sons and daughters of God, to those who believe in his name. And if you are a son and a daughter of God, Jesus declares, the sons are free. Not just free from the taxes and the money and the obligations, but you are set free from the bondage of sin, the bondage of the law, the curse of the law, the penalty of the law, even the requirements of the letter of the law. You have been set free. The sons, the daughters, the children are free. And this is such a clear statement that Jesus was making to Peter. I, the son, I'm free. But if you believe in me, you are also a son. And you, Peter, are also free. And not just us, but to everyone who also would believe in him. See, friends, we're not just looking at a temple text of whether to pay or not to pay. We're going back to scriptures in Exodus where we understand the spirit, the heart of what the Lord intended from there, not to be a half-shekel text that would shackle people to the things and the requirements of the word and the letter of the law, 
but that now in Jesus Christ, we are set free, we are unshackled from even the shackle tax or the half-shackle tax. We are set free from these obligations because we who are believers of Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High God, as children, we have been set free by Jesus. We have been unshackled. We have a freedom that we can celebrate today in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. The Lord goes on in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 17. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Well, the Lord is really saying this. Let's not offend these guys. Our right is freedom. We don't have to pay this. But let's just do it. So we don't offend them, that we do not be a stumbling block for these who are just doing their duties and just carrying out their task. The word offend comes from the Greek scandalon, which means really a trap or something that's placed to stumble someone, to trip someone up. And the principle for us as kingdom people who have kingdom freedom, I believe Jesus is saying this to us. You are free, yes, but don't let your freedom trap someone else. Is that interesting? We are free, but our freedom, if we don't administer it well, we can hold someone in that trap or they remain shackled, we stumble them, but what we want to do is to help them see it well that they in turn will know Jesus and be set free. But hang on for a moment. Jesus saying, don't offend people? Did Jesus not offend the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? And here I want you to learn something. We have to discern the difference between those who set the rules and those who carry out the rules. Jesus had no issue opposing or offending, as it were, making these guys really upset with him because he just won't follow their steps. He had no issue offending these religious leaders. Why? Because they were supposed to know the Spirit of the law, but they didn't know or they didn't want to know. In fact, they were very happy putting all these rules in because they were benefiting from the collection of all these funds. These were the very ones putting stumbling blocks before the people without any intention of themselves observing the requirements for themselves. And that's why the Lord called them, you are hypocrites. And to these, he would call them out. He would offend them to the core. Because he wants them to know that you are going about it in a totally wrong way and you are tripping others up. When he was addressing sin, idolatry, false teachings, wrong teachings, Jesus was not afraid to offend at all. But when it came to the people who were carrying out these things, who didn't know the better, his approach was always very different because they needed to be reached with the good news, with the freedom of the kingdom. And to pay a little tax, to contribute something, you know, to to go along with them so that they can build a relationship that in time they can then share the good news of the kingdom with them. To Jesus, this was not a big deal. It was not a big sin, violation, a salvation kind of issue. And although he was free from such an obligation, he was so willing to go along with the practice so that he can build a bridge that later, who knows, they would be able to share the news, the great news of the kingdom with the people who didn't know any better. But let's look at why Matthew recorded this one incident. It's not something that that has happened in the past that has no more relevance. By the time Matthew wrote his gospel, this would be years later. The temple text had already become a Roman text. After 70 AD, the Romans still required all the Jews, all the Jews, including Jewish Christians, mind you, as long as you said, I am a Jew, you would have to pay this tax. Now, no longer to the temple, but now to the Roman government. Now, what would you do if you were a Christian? You were a person, a child of the kingdom. I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm free. I'm a Jewish Christian. What do I do? But if you are a Jew, but you are not a Christian, you need to pay. Now, how would you handle something like that? 
Perhaps Matthew was recording this and the words of Jesus to say this, You are free. I am free. But let's not stumble our brothers who are not Christians yet. Let's not stumble our brothers who have not believed in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah and the Messiah for the rest of the world. Let's not argue. Let's give this tax. Let's pay this tax for the sake of maintaining even a public identification with our Jewish heritage. Let's join them in paying this tax so that as they look at us, we can then have a testimony and a witness that we still follow the Messiah and tell them who the real Messiah is and have the right to speak into their lives. Friends, our freedom is for us to enjoy, but at a time that freedom is to be directed correctly for the glory of Jesus and still for the purposes of His kingdom. Our freedom is not for us to laugh at others who still do not have this freedom, but that our freedom can be there to build a bridge still. We have that freedom to do what we need to do as long as it does not violate a kingdom truth and a principle. We can still do it that we can reach some or even more for Jesus Christ. Do you know Paul in his letters taught the same principle? Now I believe that Paul also paid the temple tax and the Roman tax because he kept many Jewish customs too. He was free, he didn't have to do that, but he wanted to identify so that perhaps he might save some of his brothers and his sisters into the kingdom of God. Look at the issue of food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Paul was telling them, look, you're free to eat. It's okay. There's nothing in this food that has been offered to these idols. But I choose not to eat it, and you can choose likewise, so that you don't have to stumble someone else who feels that this is really bad and you shouldn't be really doing that. And look at that principle. I have that freedom but I choose to give up that right for the sake of love because I want more to know Jesus and the things of his kingdom. On the issue of finance, which is what we're looking at, of support and also wages, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 to 23, he said, I'm free. In fact, I do have a right to request support from you. I'm teaching you. I am sowing spiritual truths into your lives. And if I serve you in a spiritual manner, if I were to ask you to support me in a physical and financial way, there's nothing wrong with it because you don't muzzle an ox while he works and he treads out the grain. Jesus himself says that a worker is worthy of his wages. And yet Paul said, I will not demand this of you. I won't even collect any tithe or mandate it for you. I don't want you to tithe to me in that way, okay? That every uh, month, you know, you're supposed to give something to me. I will present this gospel without charge. Why? Because I want you to know that although I have this right, I will forgo it. I have that freedom to ask you, but I will not exercise that. In fact, I will work and I will make sure I collect my own or I work for myself and so that you will see that. But if you want to give to me, I'm thankful. I will take it because that is a right. I am serving Jesus with the gospel of the kingdom and I'm serving you. I'll be happy to take that. At this point, let me insert a testimony for you to the glory of God. You know, as I teach this message today, we celebrate six years of declaring the good news of the kingdom and the things of the kingdom through the Kingdom 101 initiative. When we first started Archippus Awakening, it was very clear the Lord said that this would be a faith ministry. And when we started Kingdom 101 teaching six years ago, in my heart I was thinking, Lord, shall I take an offering? Shall we pass the back around? And the Lord drew me to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to say, no, don't do that. Don't pass the bag around at all. I know it's your right. I know you will teach and it's okay if you want to do that. But can I challenge you, Hanson? Present the word of the kingdom free of charge. No, don't, don't make people give. Don't make people even feel obligated. When you pass that bag around, even when you say it's a free will offering, they feel obligated to put something in. Don't do that. But what you want, 
just say that this is free will totally don't pass anything just leave a little box out there and if they want they give if they don't that's fine some of our helpers as i shared this with them they said you know pastor i know your intention but from experience when you put a box very few people give or less people will give and i said it's okay we will learn to trust the lord and the people will learn to give to the lord six years later I want to give glory to the Lord. Although we have the freedom and even the right to charge for our teaching, you know, to request a giving into this ministry and this teaching, we've never done that other than to say, if you want to partner us, then you give. The Lord has been so faithful. People has, have given. And I want to take this opportunity to praise the Lord and to say thank you to each and every one of us who have supported in the course of getting the word of the kingdom to so many more people. Now, what other examples or applications can we think, you know, um, or to put this into practice? Like, for example, today, what is the day of um, attending a service you know, or gathering to worship the Lord? Now, I know in the Bible it says that they gathered on the first day. But if you want to make that a law, you know, because it's a tradition, you say, oh, on Sunday you just have to go to church. And I know it, we've been doing that for years on end. But the truth is this, we worship the Lord any day. And if you want to do it any other day, you can do that. You can gather. It doesn't always have to be on a Sunday. Don't make that tradition into a law and out of freedom, curb other people's freedom and you shackle them to a day of worship. I hope you're hearing the spirit of what I'm trying to say. Take, for example, um, dressing. You are free to dress in any way. Amen? And we tell uh, so many that uh, when you come to the house of the Lord, you have to dress your Sunday best. There you go, Sunday again. Well, in spirit, yes, you know, we want to dress nicely and modestly, but does it mean that we we'll always have to be in coat and tie? Well, not necessarily. But what does it mean to be modest, that we don't stumble others? And so when you wear something that's a little bit revealing, sure, you have freedom to wear that way. But will you stumble someone? Will you trip someone up? Uh, it is wrong and you violate this principle of freedom if you would stand in front of all and show too much of your flesh and say, I have a freedom, you cannot judge me. Uh, if you are tempted, that's your own problem. You see, so I want you to see that this principle of freedom must be applied in the context of, of who we are in Jesus Christ. Do we glorify Him through the way that we worship and the way that we dress and the things that we do and the things that we say and the practices that we implement? Don't shackle people into certain laws and practices, but in that freedom at the same time, don't abuse it. Out of freedom, serve one another with love. I want to come to a final point because this passage is about kingdom giving. It is about taxes, finances. And it will be irresponsible of me if I don't at least say something about this to close this teaching. The kingdom for it to advance will require funds. It will require money. Um, how do we then do that? We may be asking a question, but how about the church building? Does it not need maintenance, property? How about the staff? Um, kingdom assignments and needs. Don't we need funds um, to further the purposes of the kingdom? Well, definitely, we do need funds. The question is, how do we uh, understand this principle and apply it? Now, if we start to look at the church building and an organization as a temple or the house of God, I dare say that that's not an accurate picture. And time and again, perhaps we have said that, you know, um, we need to support the building because this is God's building, this is His temple, this is His organization. Um, that's not really true per se. Now, I know it needs help, but let me, let me just get to that in a while. Today, we don't have a physical temple anymore. We, the people, we are the temple of God. So if you want to maintain the temple, what you're saying is that you want to maintain the people. Let me pause for a moment. You get this point? And if you're giving, you're giving temple maintenance, you're giving into people maintenance. Our heart is to give so that we can bless and meet the needs of the people. That's what the temple is about. If we understand that, 
then there will be no lack amongst the people of God. The, the, the church, the early church in Acts chapter 2, they shared everything and everyone who had need had their needs met. So it's not so much giving to the maintenance of a building, it's given to the needs and the maintenance of the people. It's not about giving to pay the salary of the full-time workers in there. It's giving so that we can be a blessing to the people of God, whether full-time in that capacity or full-time serving somewhere else. The people of God, as the temple of God, we are to overflow in our giving that we can bless the society around us with kingdom influence and with kingdom impact. I am not speaking against salaries or budgets or church building funds. I don't want you to miss the spirit of that giving because for many of us, we would wait for these things to give before we actually give. These are well and good and they are there for a reason. But if we understand the spirit of kingdom giving, we are thus not limited to these formal means or modes of giving, but we can give through the freedom and the liberty that we have. A key kingdom principle concerning finances is this. Kingdom giving is voluntary. It's not compulsory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Kingdom giving cannot be by coercion. And when you institute and implement a tax, we shackle people to a compulsory, a coerced giving, which, is, which violates the principle of the people of God. It must be voluntary, and it is out of a person's heart of generosity. Now I know you're asking in your heart right now, but what about tithe? <laughs> is it not a form of kingdom tax? Now, if you look at tithe as a form of kingdom tax, I think immediately it violates whatever we are talking about. But some of you may say, oh, but then, you know, it's mandated in the scriptures. And some will say, if we are no longer under the law, then it's by grace. Before that, the tithe was there before the law was even given. So God wants us to give the tithe. Friends, if we go by the letter of the law, thou shalt tithe or else then we miss the spirit of what the tithe is all about. And I've seen too many tithe out of fear. They tithe out of guilt or they tithe out of greed, right? Because we tell them the moment you tithe, God will bless you, multifold and so on. We don't tithe with the right spirit. I've heard of practices also where people are manipulated. Leadership or organizations can manipulate someone with this teaching of tithe. And if you want to make it even worse, it becomes mandated, it's mandatory. Do we deduct your tithe from your salary immediately now with digital ways? You know, let me help you fulfill this law. Give me your account, you know, and I will deduct it directly from you. See, this is the tithe is not kingdom tax. The tithe is the spirit of the king here where we learn about stewardship of God's resources motivated by love. The tithe is an indication of our worship of the Lord. And you don't force someone into the worship of the Lord. It's a response of who He is to us and how good He has been to us. A tithe is an expression of how we honour Him with all that He has blessed us with. God doesn't give you and then mandates that you give Him back. No, He says that I will give you, but I want you to learn that you can learn to honour me by learning how to give back to me, but it doesn't come back to me. It's for the glory of His kingdom for the purposes. The tithe is an indication of our faith and our trust in Him for provision. We love to receive from Him, but are we willing to release that back to Him to trust that in time He will give again? The tithe is in the Spirit is teaching us how to look out for others. That when we maintain the temple, the people of God, we look out for others. We learn to be a blessing. 
The letter of the tithe tells you 10% is enough. The spirit of tithe tells you 10% is how you learn as a minimum to start with. But if your heart grows with the spirit of God and the kingdom, it goes beyond the 10% as and when needed any time of the year. Friends, don't be shackled with the letter of the law as kingdom text when you see tithe. Be released into the freedom of the spirit of the tithe and then you can give. What's the main point? Hearts aligned with the king will always know how to give to the people and to the needs and the assignments of the kingdom. Get your heart aligned with the Lord and see if you are aligned with him when he says, give to this guy, give to this cause, give to this ministry, give to this purpose. So don't worry, you will know that part of your assignment might be to bless someone with kingdom finance. Over the years, I have been a beneficiary of such kingdom hearts. Archippus Awakening has been a beneficiary of many, many kingdom hearts. But in the same way, I also have been directed to sow into the life and the lives of others. Let me bring this to the close. And there's this bonus point. Finally, we ask this question. Does, did Jesus mean for Peter to go and fish for texts? Right in verse 27, go to the sea, cast a hook, pick up a fish, whatever comes first, open the mouth, you're going to find this stutter, this four drachma coin, and it's just enough for you as well as for me. Is it about faith? Why not, right? Jesus just preached about faith in the passage before. If you believe, anything is possible. So Peter, if you will just believe in me, just get out there, go fishing, and you're going to find enough for you as well as for me. Is the point about provision? Well, possibly, right? If we need to pay the tax, if we need to give the things to the people of God, God will then supply um, our financial needs for every financial obligation because our king will give us provision for the mission. And if he needs to do it supernaturally, why not? He's well able to do that. Is it a point about God's sovereignty? Imagine for Peter to be able to find this coin, someone will have to drop a coin somewhere in the sea. This particular fish will have to move, move around and accidentally swallow this coin. Peter will have to cast a hook out there and catch not any other fish, but this one particular fish at that particular time to find that particular coin to pay this particular tax. God is sovereign in all things. If he needs to provide and if he needs to have a providence over that situation in our lives that we can admit enough. Why not? Now all these are great points and they are good ones also. But notice something here. Only the instruction by Jesus is recorded. We are not told of Peter's response. Perhaps it's not Matthew's main focus. He's not there to tell you whether Peter went out there by faith or obedience or is it supernatural, the money will drop and so on. That's not his point. His point is, more critically, if and when the money and the finances and the provision comes in and it is in hand, miraculously or otherwise, what would you do with it? You have been set free. You have been unshackled. You don't have to be bound by these things. But what would you do with your freedom? So let me close with this, my friends. On this issue of taxes, three ways governments would raise money, right? They would print it, make it, or they will borrow it, or they will tax it three ways. Is this the way of the kingdom of God? I don't think so. We don't have to tax people for that. I'm not saying don't pay your taxes that are due soon. That's a different category. But the way of the kingdom is not in this way. If we learn how to align our hearts with the king, we are unshackled, we have that freedom, we have kingdom freedom. I just want to say again, be careful. We can be shackled by tradition or use scripture to justify any practice. At the same time, it doesn't mean that we dispense with God's words and His ways. But always seek to discern and understand the heart of the King, what is in His law. And then by the Spirit of the King, we learn how to live that way. 
freedom in Christ frees us to live out this spirit of the law, the way that God has intended. Along the way, don't stumble others with our freedom, but use this freedom to build bridges with others so that we can, in time, point them to Jesus. And finally, remember this, kingdom giving is voluntary with love and with generosity. God will provide enough, not necessarily equally, right? But enough for His kingdom and His people. And it will give us great opportunity for us to learn how to share and to help one another in the things and in the spirit of the kingdom. Let us pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this word. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you that you open our eyes to see the Spirit of the Lord by your Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, it's so easy just to be told, do this, don't do that, yes, no, uh, you have to, you don't have to. But Lord, you want sons and daughters to be matured, Lord, to know how to move with the Spirit of your King and of you, Lord, so that we can then make good decisions with the freedom that has been given to us. So I pray, Lord, help us to steward finances well, even as we believe and know that you provide more than enough for all of us, Lord, and that for those who don't have, may we be the vessels, that we can be the channels of kingdom blessing, to voluntarily, generously bless someone, to love someone, to provide for them, to let them know that God loves them too and will give them enough. And may we help also usher many more into the freedom of the King and the things of His kingdom. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.